What exactly is a trillion? A trillion of something. A trillion dollars. We talk of the national debt being so many trillions of dollars, but do we even know what a trillion is? Well, a trillion's a thousand billion. I'm not sure that helps. Billion's a thousand million. Uh, a trillion is a one with 12 zeros after it. Let's try and think of it in terms of seconds. If we went back in time a trillion seconds, how far would we be going back? Years? Well, a thousand seconds ago is equal to about 17 minutes. It would take about 12 days, almost 12 days, to go back in time a million seconds. How about a billion seconds? 31.7 years. Okay, you ready? A trillion seconds ago would amount to, well, let's, let's ask this question. If someone started counting in seconds from the time of Christ to now, and they lived that long, would they have reached a trillion seconds? If they're just starting at the time of Jesus' birth and started going one, two, three, and we're talking 2,000 years, would they have come to a trillion yet if they lived that long? <laughs> Do you know, a trillion seconds ago was before all human history. We're talking 31,709.8 years. That's right. 31,709.8 years. That's a trillion seconds. <laughs> So when we're talking trillions, we're talking a lot. All right. What's the wealth in this world? Well, private wealth in 2022 was estimated to be $454 trillion. It's estimated that by 2027, that figure will be $629 trillion. That's all the private wealth in the world. Now, what's this got to do with our Bibles? Well, let me read Mark 8, verse 36. I'm sure it's a scripture verse you know. Jesus said this, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? He then asked, Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? These were two rhetorical questions. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What can he give in exchange for his soul? The answer is obvious. It's of no profit at all to gain the whole world, to have all private wealth in your hands and lose your soul. It's of no profit at all. Now, that's a message in itself, but underlying the message of wealth in this world is the message of the value of a soul. And the message is this, your and my soul, any person's soul is priceless in value. Imagine having all riches, but then having loss of your soul, it's of no profit whatsoever. 
So what, you've got everything, but lose your soul, it wasn't worth it. It is of no profit whatsoever. Now, imagine a preacher appearing before the Lord at the end of his life to give an account and paraded before him were all the people who would have been converted if he was just this better preacher, more eloquent. How many souls would be put in front of him? 5,150, even one soul? You know, if he was more eloquent, if he got all his pauses right, he was articulate beyond. He, he perfectly nailed every sermon. Well, there's, there's a problem with that, massive problems with that. The whole concept is problematic because that's not going to happen. No preacher is going to stand before the Lord and he would say to them, here are all the people who would have been converted if you were a better preacher. No. A thousand times no. Why is that? Because the Bible tells us, Jesus speaking, John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's not going to be one soul lost in the scheme of things according to Jesus and his sheep. No sheep will be lost. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, Luke records an incident there in the book of Acts, and he just makes a casual comment. It would seem people came to Christ and he simply says these words and then moves on as if, hey, this is what happened. Let's move on. Let's move on to the next scene. What did he say? What did he write? All who were appointed to eternal life believed. Jesus is not going to lose any true sheep. The value of a soul is priceless and no soul bought by Jesus, chosen by God, will ever be lost. Now, it's right to stress God's sovereignty and salvation. I do it. It's also right to stress man's responsibility. I do it. Why? Because the Bible does it. There are churches where all that is talked about is God's sovereignty. And there are churches that all that is talked about is man's responsibility. The sovereignty of God. We're a sovereignty of God church. Well, that's great. And we're a free will of man church. Well, that's great, I think. But the Bible teaches both. In fact, you don't really understand man's responsibility unless you understand God's sovereignty. But the Bible teaches both concepts clearly. Sometimes we read verses in our Bible and at the beginning of the verse, it stresses God's sovereignty. And by the end of the verse, it's stressing man's responsibility. These two are certainly taught in tandem. I want us to go to Romans chapter 10 and look at, a, again, a familiar verse but I want us to meditate on the ramifications of it. I want to bring a meditation that will have as its launching pad Romans chapter 10. There's a passage there, and if you know your Bible, you know that in Romans 8 and Romans 9, the stress has been on God's sovereignty. Chapter 10 focuses more on man's responsibility. And 
God has his elect people, that is certainly clear. That should be taught. It's a Bible truth. But so is the fact that man has a responsibility. God has ends, which are his elect people coming to Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus said. That's true. The giving takes place before the coming. The giving of the Father to the Son of a group of people takes place in eternity past. And then in time, those people will come to the Son. They'll come to him in saving faith. They'll repent and they will believe. How many of those who are given by the Father to the Son will come? Jesus made it clear. All, all the Father gives me will come to me. Now that's a Bible truth. But it's also a Bible truth to say that God uses means to achieve his ends. And the means are prayer, praying for people, to come to Christ, and also preaching, sharing of the gospel. And that's what we're reading of when we're reading these words in Romans chapter 10. We read these words, verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that amazing? We're looking at, or we're quoting John 6, 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. And then in verse 13 in Romans 10, for everyone, we could equally say all, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are twin truths in our Bibles. And they're not, in contradiction to each other. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? It's a question. The answer is, well, they won't. They need to believe before they will call. Next question, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That's a question. And the answer, again, is obvious. It's not answered in the text because it's a rhetorical question. The answer is indeed obvious. They're not going to believe in him if they've never heard of him. Next, next question. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's another question. And the answer, again, is obvious. They're not going to hear without the means. Someone preaching. Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? That's another question. They're not going to preach unless they're sent. God sends his preachers. That's a whole study in itself, isn't it? We're sent ones, sent by God with a message. We're heralds of the king. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the message of joy and gladness in good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. The Old, Test uh, the Old Testament reference that's being quoted here is, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who preach the good news. And here, before uh, news media existed in our day, 
Fox News, CNN, name the network, uh, people got their news by means of runners, especially when it came to battles. Perhaps you're in a certain town, a certain city, and you're walled in as uh, the wall it acts as a defense mechanism, but you're sitting in the wall and your men, uh, the soldiers, have gone out to war. And you can't just go to your little house and receive satellite news uh, on the television. Television hasn't been invented yet. Satellites haven't been invented yet. How do you hear how the battle is going? Well, you heard by means of runners. Runners would be present near to the war zone. And when the war is won or when the war is lost, what they would do is bring the message of victory or defeat back to the town or the city. And the city would be located when uh, oftentimes mountains are in the range. There's mountain ranges around. You can see mountains from the city. And the runner running may be running for a day, two days. And he would have to often run around mountains. Mountain pathways would be in place and he would be running. And the people in the city would be observing the mountains, looking for the runners to know, hey, did we win or did we lose? Did we win a great victory or did we lose? And now we're, we've got an invading army who are gonna get us as well as our soldiers. Are we going to be dead soon? Or are we going to have peace? And these runners would run. They would come with the news and they were coming as fast as they could. And when the people in the town or the city would observe these runners, what would take place would be that they could see by the gate, by the way the runner is running, whether the news was good or bad, whether it was good news or bad news. If the runner had good news, the runner would be striding. They could see, ah, oh, that there's something important. There's a, there's a joy in the step. There's a message of good news. This is good. Look at him, he, the way he's running. Or else, if the runner had only bad news, we've lost the war. There would be this different kind of gait in the run. There would be this sadness, depression that was observable to the senses in the way the man was running. And so the lookout on the city wall would observe the runner on the mountain and see him running now with purpose. I've got a message of good news. We've won a victory. And he could see it. And that is how we now understand that scripture in its context. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Praise the Lord. Good news has come. We've won a victory. And so it is in the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has won the victory of all victories. And we're runners telling the world how he's done it. He's achieved it. Salvation is for those who call on the name of the Lord because the Lord Jesus Christ 
has paid our debts in full. Well, that's verse 16. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. All in the context of the responsibility on us to bring the message home to people. Verse, uh, in fact, that was verse 15. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The King James Version says it this way. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're uh, looking at a verse and I want us to think about the ramifications of it. Faith doesn't come by staring at a beautiful sunset. It might be inspiring and certainly it points to the God who has given us such beauty. But faith in terms of salvation comes by this means, the hearing of the word of God, the hearing of the message of Christ. That's the way faith comes. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In this regard, balancing God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, I want to be a balanced Christian. I want us to be a balanced church. We go to the text, and what we see in the text is what we will preach. And when the text preaches, or the message of the text is God's sovereignty, we preach that. And if it's man's responsibility, we preach that. Well, this is a verse all about man's responsibility. God can and will use you. As you and I proclaim, share certain content. What is that content? The Word of God, the message of Christ. I want to encourage you, God can use you and me just the way we are. I remember an amazing incident being recorded and I heard about it when a man was sharing the gospel with a friend of his and the reaction wasn't good. And the Christian was quoting Romans chapter 10, verse 9, except he wasn't able to complete the verse. He had said these words, Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and the guy interrupted him, his friend, and said, oh, shut up. I don't want to hear any more. In fact, he cussed. He was really angry. Well, the Christian just stopped at that point. What are you going to do? You, you can't really go further. He said, I don't want to hear anymore. Well, that was the end of the conversation. The two parted ways. The one who was not a Christian was very upset. And that was it. Except two days later, the upset man called the Christian and said, those words, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. They've been ringing in my ears for the last two days and I haven't ever done that. I've never made Jesus Lord of my life. Would you, would you finish what you were saying? Would, I think that's a Bible verse. Uh, would, you, would you finish the verse? Well, of course, the Christian did. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you know, the testimony I heard was that the man came to Christ. 
What's the message in this? Oh, it's beautiful. God can use even half a verse. <laughs> we are so wanting to get it right in terms of how we present the gospel. And it's right to have that as a goal, to be precise, to be articulate, to say it and tell it like it is, but just recognize God can use half a verse. And in your sharing of the gospel, if you bring half a verse, God can use that. What a great testimony. Let's go and see something of this in another passage, Isaiah chapter 55. Again, familiar words, but I'd like us to dwell on, think about, meditate on the ramifications of these words. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. Back to Isaiah and chapter 55. We read these words. Verse 8. We're just jumping into the passage and uh, we read verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now hear these words. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, for it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We'll stop there. God is making the declaration that his word, when it goes out from his mouth, will always accomplish what it's sent out to do. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, in recent times, we've been talking about distinguishing between the gospel call and the effectual call. And in understanding that concept of the two different calls, we can understand this verse. For many years, I didn't. I didn't understand this. I've preached the gospel and nothing happened. No one seemed to respond. Right? I've seen others respond to the gospel, right? Well, how is it that God's word always comes back to him fulfilled? Well, it's in the concept of the gospel call or the effectual call. If someone only hears the gospel call and the effectual call is not included with it, God has decided not to break through the resistance, at least at that moment, that, that moment in their life, it could be that years later or months later, that indeed takes place, but at that moment he's decided not to include the effectual call. It accomplished everything God desired. And that's sobering because the word preached can harden as well as soften. The word can bring God glory and judgment as well as bring him glory when his mercy is shown. But it always accomplishes everything God sets out to achieve when the word goes forth. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a comfort? You and I can't mess this up. 
<laughs> God will always, with his word, accomplish all he sets out to do. Oh, the, the, the strain, the, the, the anxiety that just drops from our heads and our shoulders when we realize God's going to get his word fulfilled. Now, before you ever preach or before you ever share the gospel, know this, God will save his elect people. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Therefore, you and I can't mess it up. You and I can't mess it up. What's the it? We can't mess it up. We can't mess it up, it being God's eternal purpose. We can't mess it up. <laughs> All the sheep are going to come home. But what a privilege to be used of God as a means. You see, God not only decrees and ordains the ends, he decrees the means. And God from eternity could well have decreed that you and I be used by him in the conversion of his elect people. Now, when we say God has an elect people, they will be saved. Let's always remember, it's always through means that they are saved. How shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. I hear that and I want to be useful in the Lord's hands. I want to be stirred up to be all that I can be. You see, knowing that God is sovereign in salvation doesn't mean that we don't seek to be sharp instruments in the Lord's hands. Imagine a cook in his kitchen and he has knives in the drawer. I want to be one of the knives, one of the knives he uses often. Oh, I've got this job. I'll use John. Isn't there something in you that wants that? I want that. I, I don't want to be so blunt that he can only use me once every four years. Okay, we'll use him here. No, I, I want him to be able to turn to me often. I want to be as sharp as possible so that as a cook in the kitchen, he can say, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use it today. I'm going to use him at three o'clock and I'm using, going to use him at five o'clock and then I'll use him in the evening at seven o'clock. I'd love that. Isn't that the case with you? Isn't that what you and I want? To be as sharp as possible, even though we know God is sovereign. When we think of the greats that God used, the greats in human terms, the George Whitfields, just focus on him for a second. What a sharp instrument. You read his sermons and they, they can bring you to tears. Similarly with Charles Spurgeon. You read one of his sermons. Thankfully, they've been preserved and we can read them. What a sharp instrument he was. I want that to be true of you, that you can be a sharp instrument. I want it to be true of me. We can be a sharp instrument in the hands of the Lord. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. God's word will not return to him void. He'll accomplish everything he sets out to do when his word goes out, goes forth. Second Timothy, you're hearing my Bible page turn, Second Timothy chapter two. It's good for us to 
see these words uh, in our own Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. There's a lot in these verses, but let's take the concept of the cook in the kitchen and being sharp. And being sharp here would correspond to being, being Christians who live something of a holy life, useful to the master, sharp in his hands, ready for every good work. I, I want that for me. I want that for you. And we can be used of the Lord and God will at the same time ordain what takes place as we're used of him. So there's this paradox. We're to rest in the fact that God will get his will done and also be stirred up to proclaim the message with all the precision we can. It's not a contradiction. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. But God can use you and me, just as we are. There are some invitational stats that are well known regarding how people start attending a church. 86%, what a huge number. 86% of people that start attending church, they say, a friend invited me. 6%, it's because of organized visitation. 6% because the pastor invited me, 2%, only 2% because of advertising. Here the big figure again, 86% because a friend invited me. What's the message? It's people that bring people. And God will use your testimony and God will use you and how you share your faith. God will use you. He's made you the way you are with you being from the culture you're from, from being a, either a man or a woman, uh, having the background you have, the vocabulary you have, the accent you have, God will use you. And God will use you as, as a friend, as a co-worker, as someone who shares the gospel with people around you. God will use you as you. He's never going to say to you, why weren't you more like him? I could have really used you. No, he made you the way he wanted you to be. And he's ordained for you to be the way you are to accomplish as a means his ends. I, I love uh, reading this. Uh, I often put it in our church bulletin just as a testimony. And the message is this, God can use even a poor witness. Think about that. Rick Phillips is a pastor and an author. I've met him. He was James Montgomery Boyce's assistant. He's preached at a number of Ligonier conferences. Terrific man of God. He's written a number of great commentaries. <clears throat> but when he writes of his conversion in his book, Jesus the Evangelist, this is what he writes. 
This is Rick Phillips, pastor, writing. <clears throat> Quote, One person who might think poorly of her witness is a woman whose words were instrumental in my own salvation. I do not know her name and doubt I could recognize her. One day, as I moved into an apartment, she was moving out next door. I carried one box of books to her car. After thanking me, she asked whether I was looking for a church to attend. My body language made it clear that I did not appreciate the question. So she quickly stammered, If you're ever looking for a church, I would recommend this particular church a few blocks away. With that, she drove off and I never saw her again. Rick Phillips continues to write, I've often imagined her kicking herself for her weak attempt to witness. But a few months later, when the Holy Spirit had prepared a way for the Lord into my heart, I remembered her words, went to that church, and hearing the gospel there, I believed and was saved. Praise the Lord. End of quote. <laughs> Oh, what a God we have, how powerful he is. We recognize that we're not the message. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord. We're not the message. We have a testimony. Your testimony is very powerful. Paul uh, shed his testimony a number of times in the book of Acts. It's very powerful. It's not the gospel, but it's powerful. But people are saved when they hear the gospel, the message of Christ, as we've read in Romans 10, 17. The gospel is actually not in your and my testimony. The gospel is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, not the testimony. That's what I meant to say. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is, it being the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation, the salvation of all who believe, of everyone who believes. Let me say a few things. You might feel very flawed. Well, God has only got flawed vessels to work with, so that's okay. God has only had one person truly qualified work for him. That's his son, with whom he is well pleased. He's flawless. Every one of us, no. And here's the message. God uses flawed people. It's been well said. It's an old quote. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. <laughs> well, he's only got crooked sticks to work with. God uses flawed and broken people and you and I qualify don't we God is not uh, gonna ask for or demand perfection in us before he can use us he'd never use us again it's a great quote well worth repeating what our function as uh, Christians is is to tell one beggar about the good news and the phrase is this we're simply one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. So you and I are flawed, but get over it. We're not the message anyway. We preach not ourselves, but
but Jesus as Lord. Should we live holy lives in conformity to the message we preach? Of course, but we never qualify to be used by God. Not in the sense of we are flawless, now God can use us. In terms of our holiness, when God uses us, it's mercy, mercy, mercy. Every Lord's Day before the service, elders gather and we're asking for the mercy of God. We're not asking for the justice of God, believe me. God, in your mercy, use us. And that's true of, of church services and the preaching of God's word, but it's true of any time God uses us in any way. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Three points to this. Number one, mercy. Number two, mercy. Number three, mercy. It's mercy in God saving us, for sure, and it's mercy in Him using us. So I want to speak to you if you're in any way paralyzed. You have an inability to move. That's what paralysis is. If you have a paralysis in sharing the gospel, speak. Write if it's emails. Communicate. And let's get back to what we've already made clear. You and I can't mess up God's eternal plan. We can be better and more useful servants than if we're blunt by being sharp, but we can't mess up God's eternal plan. Imagine the opposite. You know, I couldn't sleep at night. I really couldn't get a wink of sleep at night if I thought that my articulation would either mean my, my, my being good as a preacher or bad as a preacher meant one human soul goes to hell rather than heaven. I couldn't sleep at night. Imagine Saturday night before the Lord's Day, thinking, oh, I've got to get this right or else this one who's coming to the church may not be saved if I don't get everything right and just to so articulate, get all my pauses right and tell the story so well and reach the heart. I, my job is to be as sharp as I possibly can be and get the true gospel to the ear. And it's the Holy Spirit's work to get the message to the heart. Praise the Lord. Think of, again, the opposite of the, this concept. God will get his will done when we go back to what we said, or what I said at the beginning, the value of one human soul is incalculable to measure. If there's even one soul that could be in hell because of my bad preaching, I would never, I'd never get any sleep. So let's say farewell, let's bid farewell to paralysis. Recognize this, faith comes to God's elect people by the means of hearing. Hearing what? The word of God, the message of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is that gospel? Oh, I love to tell the story. This wonderful God, God, the Holy Trinity, God, the Holy Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became a man, was born of a virgin, 
lived an absolutely flawless, sinless life, perfectly fulfilling the word of God, the commands of his Father. On the cross, suffered in the place of sinners. He died an atoning death. He rose three days later from the dead and is now at the place of all authority in the universe so that anyone who repents, turns from all they know to be wrong and turns to him and trusts him, comes to him in faith, is saved forever. What a message. Let's go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, knowing ahead of time we can't mess it up. But as I conclude, let's pray for souls. Would you join me? God uses us in sharing the gospel. He also uses us as we pray. Prayer is one of the means God has ordained to use in the salvation of his people. Lord, we, we are so thankful for the gift of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that the message is a message of grace. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23 says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we just pray that you would save souls and save many of them and use us in our gospel conversations. Help us to be sharp, but recognize you can use anything we say, even half a verse. So Lord, give us souls. Give us souls, Lord, that you might be glorified. Use us. Lord, could it be that you've ordained to use us as a means to your eternal purposes, your ends of the salvation of lost sinners? We believe it to be the case. What, what a privilege. And as we go out with this wonderful news, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who preach this good news. May we be a joy in our communities as people hear the great message of what Christ, who he is and what he's done, when we bring that message to people, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, use us, Lord, and save souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.